Turn with me in your Bible to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2. We have a long way to go and a short time to get there. So we're just going to bypass an introduction and we're going to pray and jump right in. So let us pray. Gracious Father, so we come to you today. So we come to the book of Exodus. This is a word you have given to us. Father, we can do nothing apart from you. I pray you would pour out your spirit of wisdom and revelation, that you'd give us the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, that we may grow in grace this morning. Father, I pray you would be with us all. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. We're in the book of Exodus, second book of the Bible, and we're on the second chapter. Let us start in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And her sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. And while her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. And the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me. And I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. And he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens and saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way. And that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? And he answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me just like you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priests of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. 
when they came home to their father rule, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, Well, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, Well, where, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughters of Porah. And she gave birth to a son, and he named his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And during those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And then God remembered their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word this morning. It was a new school year, and the second grade class had a new teacher, young, timid, and she inherited a rough, a rough and rowdy little boy named Timmy. And the first grade teacher came to her and she said, Look, if Timmy gives you any trouble, send him to me. Well, a week later, the first grade teacher hears a knock on her door and she looks down and guess what? It's Timmy. She grabs him by the arm. She takes him to the back of the room and she lights them britches up. And afterwards, she says, Timmy, what do you have to say for yourself? And Timmy looked up at her and said, Ma'am, my teacher needs to borrow some scissors. You see, we laugh, but it shows a very fundamental fact. Habits develop our character. Habits develop our character. We soak up the world's principles and the world's thoughts and the world's ways of living just like fine meat soaks up marinade. It's like an old southern expression I once heard. You can't beat out of the flesh what is bred in the bone. You can't beat out of the flesh what is bred in the bone. We look at our children. They walk like us. They talk like us. They act just like us because they were bred by us. They have us bred into their very bones. And it affects their whole life. So now when we look at Moses, we have to ask a very important question. What is bred into his bones? What is the character of the man? This is a question every parent asks about their children, isn't it? How much more so for Moses' mother? Hebrews 11 says that by faith, she put him in the basket. That's an act of faith. That's scary. We look... Today, and you want to talk about giving it to God, that's what it looks like. We see many women who get abortions because they fear they cannot care for this child. There's an intense amount of pressure. But this woman is under the same pressure. And what she does is she sends the child downstream. And we know the rest of the story, don't we? Pharaoh's daughter picks up the baby... And she saves the child and she sends him back to his mother. Can you imagine how this was for Moses' mother? 
In that culture, Moses would have stayed with her until he was nine or ten. And then he would have went to school. And he would have learned how to be a prince. He'd learned astrology, math, language. He would have marinated in the world. But she had him for nine or ten years. How do you think she spent those nine or ten years? Was it chasing sports every weekend? Was it sitting in front of the TV? Was it going down to Oxford every weekend? Something tells me a little bit different. I think we take for granted the fact that we expect our children to live for lo- to a l- old age. She did not have that assurance. So for nine to ten years, I have a feeling she bred something more substantial into his bones. That when she gripped that child in her arms, she instilled in him the faith she so, clen- so tenaciously clung to. So it's worth asking, what are we breeding into the bones of our children and our children's children? Because there's a reality behind this picture. Uh, it said that you spend the first 30 years of your life learning how to live, the next 30 years of your life living, and the last 30 years learning how to die. Well, for Moses, you can divide that into increments of 40. For 10 years, he was spent with his mother. But for the next 30 years, he would be marinating in Egypt, marinating in the principles of this world. Do you think that had an effect on his life? You betcha. I can remember talking to a parent a couple years ago, and she had tears in her eyes. When her daughter was a preteen, they gave her a smartphone, let her spend the night with her friends, let her skip church, let her do what she wanted to do. And with tears in her eyes, she looked at me and she said, my daughter is turning away from Christ and there's nothing I can do to stop it. It's like marinating meat. You put just a pinch of garlic in there and you're going to taste it in every single bite. Egypt is getting into Moses' bones. And you cannot beat out of the flesh what is bred in the bones. This is a problem, isn't it? Hebrews 11 says that by faith, when Moses grew up, he did not want to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. But we need to have a caveat in that statement, don't we? Moses responds by faith, but how does he respond? Or let's put it as this. When Moses was under pressure, when Moses was squeezed, what came out of his bones? When he saw the injustice being perpetrated against his kinsmen, how did he respond? He responded just like his grandfather, Pharaoh. You may remember, when Pharaoh contemplated losing power. Power was bred into his very bones. And when he was squeezed by fear and loathing, what came out but slavery and slaughter? When Moses looks out and sees the lack of power in his brethren, when he sees injustice, what does he do? He slaughters. He kills the Egyptian. And you have to ask yourself, 
What was Moses' plan? I get upset every time I watch a movie and the antagonist is about to be caught and he takes a hostage like this. What, what you going to do after that? I mean, did you really think that plan through? What's, they're not just going to say, you know, just walk onto an airplane and fly to, to Mexico. What's the plan? What was Moses' plan? Was he going to kill the Egyptians one by one in guerrilla warfare? Was he going to stay a prince and create social reform in the government? Was he going to lead the very slave revolt that Pharaoh feared so much? What was he going to do? And you can see a pride welling up in Moses' heart because he feels like he has the authority to intervene into his brother's fight. And I think they put their finger on the problem. They said, who made you a king over us? Moses thought, they will rally around me. They will listen to me. I will be the savior of the slaves. But that's not the case, is it? It's not the case at all. That plan would never work. God will not receive the glory from a man solving problems on man's terms. Moses sees the world through the lens of power, and Moses is enslaved to it. Moses sought to solve the problem of murder by more murder, and murder sought him out. He may have been a member of the upper class, but he was enslaved to sin just like everyone else. You can't beat out of the flesh what is bread and the bone. So the question for me is this. What is bread in our bones? We are born into sin. And yet we have spent our entire life marinating in the world. If we want to know what's in us, what comes out when we're squeezed? What types of words do we use? How do we respond? And if I could say there'd be three shackles that are around our ankles. Three things we're enslaved to. You can call them the economy, the government, and the experts. Just watch. When affliction strikes, how do we respond? We go on a spending spree to make ourselves feel better. Because the economy has bred discontent into our bones. When we look and we see affliction on the horizon, we place all of our hopes on the next election cycle. Because the government has bred politics into our bones. When affliction strikes, we get on Google and we self-medicate. We look to all the experts because the experts have bred worldly wisdom into our bones. Growing up, growing up, I had a good friend. We started in kindergarten and we graduated together. Before she started kindergarten, she broke her nose. And her parents never, her parents just didn't think anything about it. Well, when you get bigger, your nose grows. And so did that crook. She had a pretty crooked nose. And she went through high school with me. You could say that that nose was bred into her. 
Now, how did she fix the problem of her nose? Well, we all know the answer, don't we? When she had graduated high school, she went to the doctor, and he broke it. He fixed what was baked into her by breaking it. How does God fix what is bread in our bones? He breaks them. The path to life always, always, always goes through the cross. We look at heaven like investment banking. That's the economy talking. You know, if I invest a few good works here, if I invest a few good works here, they will grow, bada bing, bada boom, heaven. I can retire. That's not God's plan. God's plan is a little different. From the very beginning, we see that Moses is called a fine baby. I think the KGV might say beautiful, but the word is tov. Tov simply means good. God uses that word somewhere else. God created the lights, the, the day and the night, and He said, it is tov. It is good. When God created the light, before it was the darkness. When the angels rejoiced on day four, when the stars were hung in the sky, it only come after many nights of darkness. That we must go through the darkness of the cross. When Moses was laid in a basket covered in pitch, it was a miniature ark. And we know what happens. Now what did we see in the last ark? Noah was a righteous man. He was the only righteous man. We all know the feeling we get when you go somewhere and you see just sin everywhere. It makes your skin crawl, doesn't it? Now imagine how Noah felt as the only righteous man among a land of murders and wickedness and iniquity. And then he gets into an ark with animals that smell to high heaven. It's dark, it's damp, and the waters of judgment are crushing in upon him. For Noah to get to life, he must first go through the cross, the cross of darkness, the cross of that ark. And when Moses flees, he becomes a shepherd. He waters the flock. Just like Jacob, he must spend many years in exile away from his people. The sin deep in his bones could only be broken and poured out. And you may remember Jacob. He was a cheater, but he only learned to be an honest man in exile. And the rash and murderous Moses could only learn to lead, but he could only learn through the cross of exile. Do you see a trend here? I could repeat story after story. It's like a gun. Each barrel of a gun produces an individual marking so that when they look at a bullet, they can trace those markings to see what particular firearm it was fired from. Every episode of the Bible bears a particular mark. Every Christian bears a particular mark. We must always, always, 
always go through the cross. Calvin says that having begun this way with Christ, God continues this way with all of His children. Let me be very honest. This is not an easy message to hear in an age of health and wealth. You want to hear a health and wealth message? You can find plenty. But it will not be the message of the Bible. This message is not popular, and it never has been. Look at Peter. Jesus says, Who do you say I am? And Peter says, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, Yeah, and I'm about to go to the cross. And we remember, Peter pulls Jesus aside and talks to him like a child and rebukes him. And you can only imagine what's going through Peter's mind. Jesus, the way you can split fishes and loaves, you can make a killing. You can have enough economic power to change the world. Jesus, you're the Christ. You could be king. You could affect social change. Jesus, the experts say that crosses are not good things. Have you listened to what they have to say? What does Jesus tell Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Each and every time we avoid the cross, we walk down a path with Satan. There will be crosses in our life. The path to life always, always, always goes through the cross. I look back at my own life, And I think to myself, there are places I have laid my head that I would want no one else here to do. But then I read the story of Jesus and that foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Many of us have or know people who have lost children. Some of them have lost them in the womb before they ever tasted the light of life. Some of us have lost children in young age. That is a most extreme cross to bear. And yet we remember that Jesus Christ was denied the privilege of living to old age. In our age of COVID, we've had many friends die away, isolated from family. We've been unable to hold their hands, to be with them in their parting moments. And we remember Jesus, and he comes to the tomb of Lazarus. He's dead and decaying. Jesus was not there either, and he wept. And time could go on and talk about the shame and the humiliation, naked on the cross, the death, the ridicule, the mockery, the beating, the death. But we can say that as surely as he suffered and entered into glory, so all of those who are united to him will take the same path. Between shame and glory lies a cross. The path to life always, always, always goes through the cross. If you're going to get to the king's castle, you have to go down the king's highway. And it's a very bumpy road. So church, as we think about our life and we look back, We think of the crosses we've been through, and we look forward to what's to come. 
Our natural inclination is to avoid it. But the message of the Bible is not to avoid, but to endure and to improve. This is a strange message for us. But let me tell you something. There is more to life than living. And it's a very easy statement to prove. Because there's things in this life we're willing to die for. There is more to life than living. We must look to the cross in our life and say, How can I endure it? How can I improve it? When there's a cross in our path, we must look for where they come. When MDOT plans a highway, they don't just wake up one morning and say, Guys, get some shovels. Let's build a road. No. They spend years planning. How much more is that true for our God who has planned from eternity? Look to Moses. From training as a prince to training as a shepherd, God had a plan. From being in, a, in the reeds in a basket to leading the people through the reed sea, God had a plan. From his birth to his exile, God had a plan. How much more so for us? God has a plan for his children. Every cross has been put in our path for a reason. To correct, to convict, to train in righteousness, to wean from this world. Our God is good and wise and powerful. They are put there on purpose. And he loves us so much that he paved this path with his son. And he continues to lead us down it by his spirit. Don't avoid the cross in your life. Endure it. Improve it. This is how God promotes our salvation. And also when crosses come to our path, don't just look to God, but be humble. It's easy to say to grit our teeth and to endure it and to shake our fists. How many times have we done what our bosses have told us and swore under our breath every second of it? Happens every day. Moses shows us a different path. You notice when Moses flees, we'll see in Exodus chapter 3, Moses gets to the burning bush, and Moses doesn't raise his voice, but he bows his face. The murderous Moses is made mute by humility. Humility is to not trust our strength, to not trust our wisdom, but to trust wholly in the Lord. The cross must be a medicine to our soul, expunging the toxins in our life, the toxins bred deep in our bones. If we shake our fist at God, it will only make the cross worse. If we avoid the cross, we will get lost. We must look to God, humble ourselves, and submit ourselves to Him. Now, in closing, I want to close with a story. <clears throat> I had a good friend. He was a Southern Baptist. And he had a lady sitting in the front row, blue hair, sweet as pie, tied 10% on her Social Security to the penny, marked off all her daily Bible readings. I mean, pristine church member. They had a revival. And you might not realize this, but when you have a revival in a Baptist church, it's a lot more expensive. You know, it takes a lot of water to fill that, that baptistry tub. And so after a couple weeks, 
uh, uh, baptizing people, she comes up to him and she says, Pastor, if you keep baptizing all these people, you're going to bankrupt this church. Here's a sweet, kind, precious woman, and she's getting in his face and she's angry because she's been squeezed. And you see what come out of her flesh. You can't beat out of the flesh what is bred in the bone. Those bones must be broken through the cross. And God sends many crosses in our paths. Physical, relational, vocational, natural. There's eight, eight billion ways they come through our life. Whatever they may be, they don't come from a mean, sneering, vengeful God, but from a God who loves us and wants to promote our salvation. Some of us have been through these crosses and we've gritted our teeth and we've hated God in our hearts. That's the case. Today is the day we humble ourselves. Come to Him. For He grants the repentance that leads to life. For the rest of us, the ones who know the power of His resurrection, I promise you, you will always share in His sufferings. Paul says in Philippians 1.29 that as a gift, we get the gift of faith and the gift of suffering. They come together. But when these crosses come, don't turn from them. Turn to Him. Love Him. Trust Him. And obey Him. For His cross promotes our salvation. Let us pray. Gracious Father, Would you help us to get a better vision and a clearer vision of who you are? That you love us, that you care for us, and that we would not be surprised when these fiery trials come among us, that you test us and refine us in the refiner's fire. Father, may we endure these crosses by faith. May we endure the trials of this life and come out shining Father, we ask these things in your Son's name.